Hey, it's so good to be able to see uh, the next generation of the church, and we need to get behind them. That's right. <clears throat> so, no pressure, but the future of the church rests on them, um, and it rests on us too because we are responsible for passing the baton. So, just that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about this morning. My name is Joe. I'm so glad you've joined us. Um, I want to say hi to our online community as well. Thanks for being with us. Um, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we're so thankful to be uh, able to learn from you today. Lord, we want to learn every day from you. We want our lives to be marked as people who are disciples of Jesus, who would just yield to you in whatever area we need to yield. And so God, we pray that you would reveal more of um, yourself to us this morning. You would help us to just understand your word and, um, and how to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what if I told you right now that there's a war going on all around you in the unseen world, and there's this battle is being fought over the, the plans and the desires of God? There's a reference in the Old Testament that just confirms this. In the book of Daniel, Mark alluded to it last week, where Daniel humbles himself, and he seeks God, and he, and he fasts for 21 days, three weeks. And, um, and at the end of that time, an angel shows up in direct answer to his prayer. But that angel uh, tells him that he would have gotten there sooner, but he got stuck in a battle in the heavenly realms with a dark angel, a demon, the prince of Persia. And that battle lasted for exactly the same amount of time that he was fasting, 21 days, three weeks. And the, the way the angel is able to get loose is because another angel shows up. That, that angel is Michael. He's one of the chief angels. And, he, and so he helps this angel get free. And he finally arrives on the scene to bring an answer to Daniel's prayer. And so why did I share that with you? Because when you read the New Testament, you see that Jesus, James, Peter, and Paul, most of the New Testament writers are very aware of this unseen world. They knew that Satan is real and he wages a battle around us every day. And every day there's opposition, hindrance, temptation, moral failure, affliction, and oppression in the lives of Christians and non-Christians. Every day he and his demonic cohorts are attempting to derail your life, your relationships, your family, your marriage, this church, and churches all over the world. But God doesn't want us to be naive to this reality. And so his word is full of truth that seeks to prepare us for this war. For those of you who are new with us, um, I'm glad you're here. I, I, there are many of you that I don't know, and if I get a chance afterward, just come uh, greet me. I'd love to meet you. Um, as Mark has been working his way through Romans, I've been giving him a breather uh, and working my way through another letter in the New Testament, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, the first letter. And so this church in Thessalonica gets this letter from Paul where he just gushes about the, these young Christians. He's so encouraged by their faith and, 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 and by just their life. You can, you can title the, the letter, uh, The Church at Her Best, because what happens in this city is that these people embrace the message that Paul preaches to them, the gospel message. And that message is the message that when Jesus came, he came to rescue people like you and me, sinners. God knew that we were separated from him because of our sins, so he came. He sent his son, who lived a perfect life, and then died the death of a criminal on a cross so that we could be reconciled to a holy God, so that anybody who puts their faith in him would be made right forever with the God of the universe. 
And this is the message that turns their world upside down. And so as they embrace this message, they have this hardcore movement away from worshiping idols. That movement is, uh, that movement away from sin is what the Bible refers to as repentance. And, and that repentance, that turning away from sin, really is what kind of like had this huge impact on, on this whole region. The, the whole area around this church just heard the story of what God was doing in this place. And the ripple effect was actually felt throughout the whole world, we're told. And so we pick up today in chapter 2. In verse 17, and we're going to see three things that Paul's going to highlight here for us. One is Paul's going to talk really about just how much he loves these people. And it gets a little redundant as you read through this letter. But you just got to just be an, in, kind of amazed that this is, this is really this guy's heart for these people. And so he's an example to us. The second is you, you see Paul gives a reminder to this church that they're going to face all these challenges and afflictions and adversity. And so Paul just encourages them to stay the course and then the last thing we're going to see is Paul's going to give us a short theology of evil. And so let's jump, just jump right in, looking at the first thing that Paul talks about. And really, it's his heart for these people. Verse 17, Paul says this. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We, for, for we wanted to come to you I, Paul, more than once. And so here again, we see this, the heart of this pastor and church planner. He wanted to be with these people, but he says that he was taken away. So what's keeping him from going back? Well, if you were to go back and look at what happened in the story of what happens in, in the book of Acts when Paul shows up in Thessalonica, you would see that he, amazing things happen. There's this turning away from from uh, um, idolatry, and, and many people respond to the gospel, but there's some people that aren't that excited about what Paul's preaching. And so they chase him out of town. And it's not like they're like, you know, uh, a friendly kind of mob, if there is one, um, but they're, they're an angry mob. And so there's, there's this desire they have to hurt him. The, the, intent, the persecution's so intense, they chase him all the way up the road to Berea, which is a long walk. And, um, <clears throat> and eventually he gets pushed all the way to Athens. But what Paul wants to make really clear here is that these people matter to him. And he longs to see them. The Greek word, therefore, desire, the ESV translates it as longing, is the positive use of the word lust. And it's epithumia. He lusted to be with these people. His great desire, not sinful in any way here, just shows how strong of a relationship and a commitment he had to helping these people grow up in their faith. The difference between positive lust and sinful lust is that positive lust is for the sake of the other person. Paul's great desire to be with these people was to help them continue to be rooted and established in their faith. That's how the word lust could be used in a positive sense. Paul's desire was really for them. He wanted the best for them. He wanted them to follow Jesus for the long haul. And he was concerned, as we'll see a little bit later here, that because of the challenges that they were facing, that they would be tempted to just throw in the towel on their newfound faith. And so I've said this over and over again as we've kind of worked our way through this letter. But you get to just see how much Paul loves people. He loved people inside the church, and he loved people outside the church. 
I mean, when Paul shows up uh, in, in a city like Thessalonica, there isn't a church on every corner. In fact, there isn't a church at all. These people were super unaware of who Jesus was and, and what he had done for them. And so what Paul does is he begins the process of connecting and building relationships with people. And, and one of the first groups of people he would go to would be people who were more God-fearing. Usually he would go to the Jews first. And he would begin the process of building relationships and helping them understand who Jesus was. And so Paul loved people who weren't Christians. But there was something special that happened with these new and young Christ followers. He developed a special bond with these people, similar to the kind of bond that a, a mom or a dad has with their children. And we actually see that just a little earlier in this chapter. That he, Paul and his co-workers were like, like a mother or a father to these people. And they wanted him to kind of grow up and mature in their faith. And you know what? You see that here at New Hope too. That was one of the things that really attracted me to this community. I would watch Mark and Gary and Rich and, and Kyle and, and, and Michael as they pastored you all. How they cared for you. Now you might already know this, but pastoring isn't like other traditional jobs. You don't punch a clock. You often don't have the same boundaries as your neighbors. You really don't have any kind of set schedule. It's kind of like you try to have some level of boundary, but really your life is set up to just care for people. And a lot of times people don't have problems in the eight to five time slot. And so that's the kind of situation that Paul and his coworkers were in as well. So Paul gets chased out of town, but he can't wait to get back there and be with these people. He continues in verse 19, he says this. He says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? And then he says, for you are our glory and joy. Now, if you've been with us for uh, any amount of time over the past several months, when you hear Paul say that, something should kind of cause you to stop and wonder for a moment. Because most of the time when Paul talks about hope, it's linked to Jesus. And his idea of, of hope is intimately woven to being with Jesus. That's really what biblical hope is. It's a confident expectation that one day we're going to be with him. And so what Paul does here is something different. He says, you are our hope. And so what's going on? Well, I like the way one commentary writer put it. He says this. He says, Paul's hope then was the hope that he would not have run in vain, but that the Thessalonians would persevere and his labors in the service of the gospel would be validated by their persistent faith. In other words, in saying you are our hope, he's saying that you continuing in the faith is a big deal to us. We're pouring our lives into you with the hope that you will remain faithful to Jesus and then you'll take the baton and you'll pass it to another group of people. And that you'll help make disciples too. And that makes sense, right? I mean, I, or what I do and what we do, is, isn't, it's not play, we're not playing a game here. I mean, we, we don't just do this because we couldn't get a different job. We, we don't just do this so we can kind of give you something to do on the weekend. I mean, I, this is real life. As we work to see your life built up and established in Christ, we want to see you soar in your faith. 
We want to see you make progress and lead others to faith and help them grow up to maturity. This is our motivation with everything we do here at New Hope, from children's ministry all the way to seniors. And that's the reason Mark just spent two weeks teaching about false teaching. So that you would be able to discern what's true and what's false. See, the goal of what happens here is that you would become mature and unmovable in your faith. And that your faith in Jesus would be the foundation for your life. And that as you learn and grow, you would obey. In other words, learning and growing isn't the end. It's a means to the end. The end, the goal is that you would obey and that you would glorify God with the way you live your life. And as you grow in obedience, your life becomes established on the bedrock foundation of Jesus and his gospel. And so that when the winds and the waves of life come, it's not if they come, it's when they come, that you're unmovable, that you become unshakable because of how God has established you in Jesus. And so our goal as pastors is to follow Paul as he encourages this church. And so Paul's just honest that we as pastors do all that we can to help you to be strong in your faith so that at the end of the day, we haven't labored in vain. And so what do we we learn from this? Well, I have four quick thoughts. The first thing is we learn that to Paul, people were never a project. This was his family. The second thing we learn is that ministry is about people. Now, you kind of hear people kind of tease that you know, like ministry would be great except uh, if it weren't for the people, right? And, and we kind of get that. You know, like my life has some mess in it. Your life has some mess in it. When we're together, there's lots of mess. And, um, but the reality is this is the work of the church. This is the work that God has given us to do. No, I didn't say this is the work that God has given the vocational pastors and staff to. This is the work that God has given all y'all and me and, 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 and the rest of the staff to do together. We're all in this together. The third quick thought is a, a maturing follower of Jesus is going to love people more and more, and especially God's people, brothers and sisters. Because this is the mark of what it would look like to become more like Jesus. I mean, this is who he is. And so as we look to figure out how are we growing, we can just see, like, are we becoming more like him? And then the fourth kind of thought is more of a question. And the question is this. Based on this passage, what do you value? Like, where are your priorities at? Paul is just straight up. He says, when Jesus returns, what will we have to show for our lives? It's you. He says, you are what we have to show for our lives. And so at the end of our lives, all the money and possessions that we've accumulated won't matter at all. The only thing that will matter is how you leveraged your life for the sake of the gospel and how you loved people. That's all that's going to matter. Okay, that's the first thing we see is Paul's heart. The second thing, again, is that we begin to see that Paul is trying to remind these people, hey, we told you over and over again that you're gonna experience challenges and adversity and affliction, so when it comes, don't be surprised and don't give up. This is what he writes. Chapter three. He says, therefore, when we couldn't do it no longer, 
we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our right-hand man, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. And so if you remember from the very beginning of this letter, Paul says that um, these people experienced challenges in their faith right from, the, right from the go. Right from when they first received the message of the gospel, they experienced challenge. But affliction, especially when it happens over a long period of time, you, if you've ever been in a trial that just kind of keeps going on and on, it begins to kind of wear you down, right? You feel kind of like just exhausted, exasperated by it. And so that's, I think, a little bit of what's going on here. The word affliction there in the Greek is the word philipsis. And the sense of the word is this. It's a, a state of distress, an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. And so Paul sent his best man, Timothy, to encourage and exhort these young believers to help them not to quit, to not give up, to hang in there. Now I wonder if you have ever been in a place like this in your life where you just felt like, man, I don't know if I can take it anymore. I just feel like I'm, 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 not, I'm barely able to hang on. If you've ever been in a place like that, you know that one of the most helpful things um, oftentimes is having somebody who comes alongside of you to, to just be with you in your suffering. Some of the most powerful illustrations that I know are people who band together to overcome discouragement and, and affliction. One of those stories is the story of uh, Corey and Betsy Ten Boom. And I've shared that story in different components and different pieces of it in in the past, but I want to look at a little different nuance of it. See, Corey and her sister were Christians who lived in Holland during the Nazi invasion in the, in the 1940s. And their entire family set up an operation to hide Jewish people from the Third Reich. And as a result of their work, they eventually were captured and imprisoned. And Corey and her sister ended up in one of the most horrendous uh, concentration camps. It was called Ravensbrück. And what they experienced, the afflictions these women faced in this concentration camp were atrocious. They were unfathomable. Some of the greatest brutality and evil anyone could ever face. And yet in the middle of hell on earth, Corey and Betsy established a little community of women, a little like sisterhood, if you will. And they, and they linked arms together and nightly under the single light bulb, they, they studied the Bible and they prayed and they worshiped together. They were able to give courage to each other to, to continue and, and to follow Jesus. Corey said that these times together were like little previews of heaven. Well, Corey's not the only one who knew how important it was to have others with you as you go through suffering. And Paul knew this too. And that's why he sent Timothy, because sometimes you just need someone's physical presence with you when you go through suffering. Now, back in the day when I, when I was a first, uh, first became a Christian, we, would say, we had a lot of cheesy worship back then. And um, 
Uh, one of the songs that we would sing is, it, it was a song that basically said, Jesus, you're all I need. And I know that's not cheesy. I mean, that's true. I mean, Jesus is all we need. Um, a pastor probably shouldn't say that. Um, but um, he's all we need. But in a sense, he's all we need for a gospel and salvation. But if you think about it, God said it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he created a helper suitable for him, right? So God instituted marriage. This is, and then, and then Jesus said, you know, I'm going to, on Peter's confession in the New Testament that he was the Messiah, he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against this fellowship. And so we see over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus, yes, he is all we need for salvation, but he knows that we need something more than that. We need each other. And so over and over again in the New Testament, we just see how vital relationships are with other Christians to our own walk with Jesus. We need each other. And, and what I'm talking about is it's deeper than just showing up a, a couple weekends a month and kind of like, I don't know, not knowing anybody. We need to be known so that when affliction comes into our lives, people can encourage us. They can help strengthen us in our faith. Now, if, if you have been um, you know, present in this area over the last couple weeks, you know that water covered most of the Midwest, and it found its way into a lot of people's basements in the Lansing area. And one, one of the days, uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were just walking in our neighborhood, and we saw a plumbing truck out in front of one of our friend's houses, and she goes to New Hope. And so we kind of knocked on the door and peeked in and said, oh, did, you, did your basement flood out? Is there anything we can do to help you? But this individual, she's so interconnected with other people that she had a nonstop flow of friends coming to her aid in the time of tremendous affliction. I mean, think about it. There, there's probably nothing that would create a, a, a sense of like helplessness than having your basement flood out. I mean, it's definitely an affliction. It, it, it's, it's something that would be super distressing. It'd be a nightmare. We need people in our lives like this woman has in hers. I had a, a friend lose a 15-year-old son this past fall to cancer. We hear the story about this young gentleman who passed away this week. Tremendous uh, stories of loss. I don't know how you, how you go through loss like that alone. And so here's what I want to have you consider this morning. I want to have you consider jumping in with a group of men and women, kind of linking your arms together and, and establishing a, a band of brothers and sisters, jumping into a small group. I, I don't know if, you're, if you have ever been in a small group like that, and I'm not talking just about a kind of a stale Bible study. I'm talking about a group of people that you do life together with. I have one of those here at New Hope, and I'm so thankful for it. I don't lead it. There's other people that lead it, and they push us to do way more together than I would naturally just do on my own. But it's so good because we have a chance to know each other. We have a chance to care for each other. We have a chance to feel connected here to this church. Okay, that's the second thing that we, we see Paul speaking to. The third thing is um, Paul is gonna help us develop our theology of evil. And this is what he says at the end of verse 18. Remember, he said that he longed to be with these people, and yet Satan hindered him. 
The word hindered in the Greek is this word enkopto. And, and it, it means hindered, it also means thwarted. And the sense of the word is to hinder or prevent the accomplishment of something. And so what we see here is that Satan is active. Evil isn't just an idea. It's a person. And I would imagine that many Christians are, I was going to say clueless, but I thought that kind of seemed harsh. So then I thought maybe naive would be a better way to say it. We're, we're naive to who Satan is and what he does. C.S. Lewis alluded to this in the screw tape letters, if you've ever read the book. He said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall regarding the devil. One is to not believe that he exists at all. The other is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. Isn't that true? We tend to kind of oscillate. We either live as if we're not in a war or we blame the devil for everything. But the reality is we are in a struggle and our struggle isn't with people. It's in the spiritual realm. So why might Paul say that Satan hindered him? Well, first, Paul embraced the reality of a spirit war. He saw it in his ministry. That's why he told the church in Ephesus that they needed to prepare themselves for battle by putting on the full armor of God, that the day of evil is coming. So you need to be ready for it. He saw the battle up close because of his involvement with people. He was going into enemy territory and he was dragging captives to freedom. We see that actually in the New Testament. It says that what God does is he, he rescues people. He goes into the domain of darkness, the dominion of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and he rips people out of it and he brings them into the kingdom of his son, into Jesus' kingdom. So what's Paul referring to when he said Satan hindered him from coming to these people? Well, we're not exactly sure. It could have been the thorn that Paul experienced. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says that he was given a thorn in his flesh. It was a messenger of Satan to torment him. No one's sure exactly what is meant by the thorn. It could have been a physical ailment. He had this nasty eye disorder that would just kind of ooze. And so you can imagine as, you're, as, as a public speaker, as a preacher, if your, eyes ooze, if your eye oozed and, and it kind of got stuck in your beard and you just got all kind of crusty stuff, and that could be a distraction. You might kind of miss what I'm trying to say and be like, man, that's so gross. And the hindering could also refer to the crazy opposition he experienced from pretty much everybody. The Thessalonians, these crazy people chased him out of town. Paul met with so many who opposed his message. And again, the Thessalonians, they weren't not, not like, hey, we, we would prefer that you leave. They were an angry mob and they wanted to hurt him. And so, I don't know about you, but that might prevent me from wanting to go back. That might hinder me from wanting to go back, right back into the hornet's nest. But at the end of the day, we're, we aren't told exactly what the hindrance was. But here's the point. Satan is real, and he wants to hinder the work of God in your life, in your family, in your ministry to others. He has schemes and strategies, and his schemes and strategies uh, want to hinder the work of God moving forward. He doesn't want you loving your neighbors. He doesn't want you to have a good marriage. He doesn't want you sharing your faith. He doesn't want you to walk in freedom as a Christian. He doesn't want you to be believing the truth. He wants to render you completely ineffective in your life and your faith. And so that's his goal. So how does he do it? Well, his primary strategy is actually very simple. It's deception. He's a liar. When Jesus talks about him, he says that when Satan speaks, he speaks lies. He's the father of lies. The only language he knows is lies. 
And we're given another insight into his strategies here in chapter three. This is the last verse we're gonna look at this morning. Paul says this. He says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul was concerned that the tempter had tempted these people and that because of the afflictions that they were going through that they would just have chucked their faith. I'll style this in just a little bit more. What does the tempter do? Most often what he does is he tempts you to believe that God is something other than who he really is. He tempts you to believe that God isn't good. That God is withholding something good from you. That as you experience pain and suffering, that somehow God is no longer trustworthy. And all it takes is just a hairline crack in your spiritual foundation that, gets un- that goes unchecked. And often the lie is subtle and it develops over time. It starts off as a half-truth and it eventually becomes a fully developed, deeply entrenched deception. But here's the bottom line. Almost all of the temptation has to do with your beliefs and your thinking. And we live in a culture that's super sloppy in the way that it thinks. And to be honest, we live in an age where the church is super sloppy in the way that we think as well. And that's why we need to know this book. And we need each other. We need each other so that we can have others say, hey, the way you're thinking right now, it's off. You know, that that thing you shared, you're missing something there. It's subtle, but you've got to catch this. I need that, and you need that. We believe things all the time that are slightly off. We allow subtle deception into our minds. It happens to the best of us. It happened in the New Testament. It happened to Peter. The whole book of Galatians is written as a, as a, uh, a, a, to refute a heresy. And Peter is right in the center of it. it. Happened to John the Baptist. John was put in prison for speaking out against Herod, marrying his brother's sister, his, his, his brother's wife, excuse me. And so if you remember what Jesus said about John, he said there's no one born of women greater than John. And so um, John's in prison and anybody that's in prison, like, you know, for something that you didn't do wrong, you're going to begin to, to, to doubt. And so what John does is he sends his, his disciples back to Jesus and says, hey, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? And if you remember what John experienced, it, it was unbelievable. God revealed to John who the Messiah was going to be, that when he was baptizing in the Jordan, the Messiah was going to be the one whom the Spirit came down in the form of a dove and landed on. So John knew exactly who the Messiah was. He, he didn't have to doubt. He didn't have to wonder. He had this supernatural revelation. He knew that this is the person I'm to follow and to make straight his paths. And that makes sense when you're in, in a good spot in your life. But when you're in prison, you start to kind of wonder, maybe I was off. Maybe I was thinking that this was supposed to go this way and it seemed like we, instead of zigging, we zagged. 
At some level, I got to wonder if John was thinking, this isn't how it was supposed to turn out. Like, I thought if you were faithful to God and you served him, that you would actually be blessed. Prison, when I look up the definition of prison, it doesn't have the word blessing next to it. To be beheaded, that, that's far from blessing. And so this is what happens when, when uh, John's disciples brought that question to Jesus. This is what Jesus said to him, to them. He said, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. He said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he says this, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That word offense in the Greek, this is our last Greek word, is the word scandalizo. And the sense of this word is to be appalled, to trip, to be or become some filled with disgust or revulsion for someone and therefore reject him. And so Jesus is saying, John, you're blessed if you don't reject me because of the afflictions you're facing. If you don't become filled with revulsion and push me out of your life because of your suffering. See, that's why Paul was concerned for these people throwing in the towel on their faith. Because if John the Baptist could struggle to believe in the face of affliction, it could happen to any of us. Now you might be in a spot where you have been going through suffering for a long period of time and you are about at your wit's end. Or you might be in a spot where you know you have just believed a lie for a long time and you can tell it's a lie because it's created a lot of tension between you and others. Well, what I, I, I wanted to offer you is it, you can just come up and, and talk to me after we're done. I'd love to get you connected. We've got a great care ministry here at New Hope. People who would just love to sit with you as you're walking through with whatever you're walking through. And so here else I want to cl- close out our time today, just the last few moments we have. We talked a lot about the work of Satan here at the end of this passage. And I, I wanted to remind you, I wanted to end with a reminder that Jesus is the all-powerful king of the universe. And his death on the cross defeated Satan forever. And when you received Jesus as your savior, The Spirit of God came into your life and and his indwelling means that Satan has lost ownership over you. He can still pester you. He can still torment you, but you're no longer his slave because when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and he is interceding for you. He is advocating for you for you before the Father. So Satan is accusing and Jesus is advocating and interceding. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I've got him. He's with me. I, his, my blood covered that. And, and, and her, she's with me. She's mine. Genesis 3 foreshadows the day when the serpent would bite the Savior's heel. But it also foreshadows that the Savior would crush the serpent's head. And so when Jesus died on the cross, Satan bit his heel. But when he rose from the dead, 
Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And so in doing that, Jesus bought you out of slavery and you are free from Satan, sin, and death. Now all the evil one can do is tempt you and whisper lies to you. He no longer owns you. And again, that's why as we close, you need this in your life and you need this in your life. And we need to be aware of who the evil one is and what his schemes are. I'm gonna leave you with this thought from Romans 8 here. Paul says this, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, he says angels, it means all angels, bad and good angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, and that's pretty exhaustive, it's it's everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, today we're so thankful just to be reminded, reminded about what you've done for us in going to the cross, that you, Jesus, have made a way for us to be free. We are free to live for you. And God, we thank you that you have just given us this great example in this church. One day we're gonna be reunited with them and we're gonna get a chance to hear the stories firsthand. And so God, we thank you for their example. We pray that you would would, uh, use their example in our lives, that we as a church would be like them as they followed Jesus. Help us to do life together, to, to really be a band of brothers and sisters who encourage each other and help us not to be unaware of the schemes of the devil. And that even in that, we would be able to encourage each other. And God, we lift all this up in your son's name. Amen. Have a great week.